you brought your Bibles today, and I hope you did, would you take them please and turn to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing this series we've called Pray Like Jesus. We're looking at the times in the gospel of Luke when Jesus prayed. We've seen that it was important for Jesus to pray, and so it must be important for us to pray too. You also have a note sheet in your bulletin. You may want want to pull out. We're going to keep moving today. Today will be the last sermon in the series when we just hear about Jesus praying and don't actually hear what he's praying. So next week, for the last few weeks of this series, we'll actually, uh, we'll read, we'll get to hear the content of Jesus's prayers. But uh, the, the vast majority of time that Luke records that Jesus prayed, he doesn't tell us what he prayed, just what happened before, or after, or while he was praying. So uh, today we get to look at what happened after Jesus prayed. The kind of the big idea or the, the driving idea behind today's message is that prayer leads to new understanding of who Jesus is and how he operates. Prayer leads to new understanding of who Jesus is and how he operates. So after we read the text today, or as we read the text, we're going to see that coming out of prayer... Jesus revealed himself and his desire for his disciples, not only those who were there when this happened, but for those of us who follow him today, he revealed it to a new depth, Uh, not a new purpose, but it almost seemed like it to the disciples at the time. So we'll be reading from Luke chapter 9. Hopefully by now you've had a chance to find that. I'm going to start reading at verse 18, if you'd like to follow along, please. Luke writes once, or we might say another time, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with them, with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, there's a good chance that in your copy of the scripture, there's a, there's a break here somewhere around verse 21 or verse 22 with a new heading. But what I want you to catch is that this account continues through that heading. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, if you have something to write with, underline these phrases, must deny themselves, underline that, these are, these are the three characteristics of a disciple. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross daily, underline that, take up their cross daily, and follow me, underline that. Or if, you, if you'd like to, if there's not a note in your study Bible, you may write in the margin, keep following me. Keep following. In the original language, it, it has an I-N-G on the end. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
So the big idea today, what we see coming out of this passage is that prayer leads to a new understanding of who Jesus is and how he operates. And that, that new understanding is a very specific one and, and one that we too easily lose track of. And when we hear it for the first time, we have a tendency to go, that can't be right. There's, there, there's been some kind of misunderstanding here. So what we want to do is we want to look at this new uh, understanding, this revelation that Jesus presents to the disciples in this time uh, the, the, in these verses here in Luke 9. So what I want to do is look at kind of each element. First, let's look at the setting. Look in your text at uh, Luke 9, verse 18. Can someone tell me, just shout it out when you find it. Can someone tell me when this conversation that we just read, when did it happen? What day of the week or what week of the month or what month of the year? Just shout that out when you find it. We won't wait too long because you won't find it. Can you, uh, can you tell me where it happened? Go ahead, look in your text. That's fine. Like the only cue we have is it was in private. That, as to the location, Luke only says it was in private with his disciples. And, and as to, to time, the only cue we have is it just happened another one of the times when Jesus was praying, which Luke records quite a few of. What was the context of this new revelation, this, uh, this new reality that Jesus shares with his disciples. What's the context? What's happening? Prayer. Okay. I know you, like, that seems too obvious. That can't be the answer. Yes. Prayer is what happened, or prayer what was happening uh, when Jesus shares this new revelation of who he is and how he works, really kind of for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, with his disciples. Now that's significant. I believe that Jesus shared what he shared, this revelation that we're going to look at in a minute. Jesus shared what he shared in the context of prayer because he understood that the only way for this to take, I mean, this is so opposite of what we tend to think, that the only way it takes root is in prayer. The only way that this revelation will make a difference is in prayer. The only way that we'll ever believe it is in prayer. So the setting for what Jesus is going to share is prayer. Now look, notice that Jesus asks a question as he leads up to, to what he wants to share with them. Actually, there's two questions in the test, right? There's, the first question is, who do people say that I am? And, and uh, you know, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and the disciples respond all kinds of ways. Some say John the Baptist. You know, some say Moses or one of the other prophets. I mean, there's just all kinds of ideas out there about who Jesus is. Still the same today, Yeah. So if you were to walk into a grocery store or a coffee shop or, or the health club, like we've said Greg Bursar does, and say, what can you tell me about Jesus? Who is Jesus? You'd get all kinds of answers. I mean, some people would say, um, you know, he was a good moral teacher. Some, some would say, well, he says his name differently, but he repairs my car at the, you know, the mechanic shop. Okay, that, sorry. Okay, thank you. At least a little laughter. Let me know that you're still awake. I know it's warm in here, but hang with me. You know, some would say, like the Catholic guy once said, I think he's the dude on the cross at the front of the church. I mean, there'd be all kinds of answers if you were to ask people today, who is Jesus? Some of them would be right, some of them would be wrong, some of them would be, you know, mostly right, but not completely. I mean, it just, it could go every which way. But the important question is when Jesus says to the disciples, okay, that's fine, but who do you say that I am. 
Who do you say that I am? I want us to notice a couple things about this question that Jesus asks. I would say not only the disciples, but that Jesus continues to ask us too. Who do you say that I am? First of all, um, think about the, the first time Jesus asked this. His disciples, they've just gotten done praying. His disciples who have been with him maybe a year and a half, but they've watched some incredible things. Matter of fact, if you just flip backwards through the gospel of Luke, you can see what they've watched Jesus do. Most recently, he, like, he, he fed a bunch of people with hardly any food. He raised a dead girl and he healed a sick woman that no one else could heal. He, uh, he healed a leper by saying two words and touching the guy. I mean, these are just the most recent things. They've, they've seen him take control over a storm. They've seen Jesus do all kinds of incredible things. They've heard him teach. You know, one of the best, probably the best teacher to ever live. Definitely the best teacher to ever live. They've heard him teach. They've sat at his feet. And Jesus still needs to say to them, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Now, let's not think that we're any different than the disciples. The truth is, today, as we gather to worship, that Jesus still needs to say to the gathered body of worshipers, who do you say that I am? Who do you understand me to be? Just because we're in church... Just because we've been coming to church even possibly for, you know, for months or for years or some of us for decades doesn't necessarily mean that we've grappled with this question of who Jesus is and who Jesus is to us. We're all on a journey with Jesus Christ and we're all at different points in that journey, just because we're here, just because we take communion, just because perhaps we've been baptized or we're church members or we hold church office or we, uh, you know, we, we serve the community, just because all those things may be true of us doesn't mean that we don't need to grapple with the question, who do you say that I am? And the implied question that goes with it. Do you really live like that? Who do you say that I am? Not just with your answer, but with your life. Jesus had to ask the disciples who had seen him up close and personal for much of his ministry. And he still needs to ask us, me, us together, too. Second thing I'd like to say about this question, who do you say that I am, is that, that even when you've answered that question, like Peter did, right? Peter said, God's Messiah. And he was right on. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, whoa, you didn't figure that out by yourself. God told you that. I mean, it was the right answer. Even when we've answered correctly, you are the son of God. You're my savior. You're my Lord. You're my redeemer. However, we would answer that in regards to who Jesus is. Even when we answer it right once, we still have to answer it multiple times over the course of our walk with Jesus, right? We saw that with Peter. Here in Luke 9, Peter says, you are God's Messiah. And we know that that was the right answer. But go not too many chapters into the future, what, maybe 17 or so. 
And you've got Peter denying that he even knows Jesus. We have to answer multiple times this question, who do I really think Jesus is? And am I going to act like that? I remember a number of years ago sitting across a table from a church leader as we were talking about an important decision the church board had to make. And it was one of these decisions that um, there, I'm going to say there was no right or wrong answer. What I mean by that is we couldn't open up to a book of the Bible and say, clearly scripture says, do this or don't do this. It was, it was one of those things that leaders wrestle with where it just seems like on both sides, no matter which, no matter what we do, it seems like there's, there's good things and there's bad things. There's, there's pros and there's cons. And then to make the discussion even more difficult, it was one of those issues that everybody gets hot and bothered about, or those who were, you know, aware of this decision process. They, it was just a, it was a difficult situation. And I looked across the table at my friend who, who no doubt has answered this question of who he thinks Jesus is, and Jesus is his Lord, and he loves Jesus, and he's following him. And I said, what does Jesus want us to do? What would demonstrate most clearly who Jesus is? We all have to wrestle with this question, not just once, but multiple times in our walk with the Lord. Who do you say that I am? And of course, as we've, as, as we've already noticed after the question, there was an answer. Peter said, you are God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. And that's kind of where Luke's you know, this part of the conversation for Luke ends. In Matthew, we read that Jesus, you know, says to Peter, that's absolutely right. That was revealed to you by God. And I'm telling you, God has great things in store for you, Peter, because you're willing to, to listen and be obedient. But in Luke, it just stops at God's Messiah. Luke, Luke is intentional. He doesn't want us to miss what comes next. What, what I've called the, the, the revelation, this uh, this new realization. Let's look at that revelation. Let's read together again, verse 22. I think we're going to put this on the screen. And Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus says, who do you think I am? Peter, speaking for the disciples, says, well, you're God's Messiah. You're our Savior. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, and I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die. Here's the revelation that Jesus is laying on them and on us. When Jesus is your Lord, suffering, rejection, and death mark your life. When Jesus is your Lord, suffering, rejection, and death mark your life. Now, I, I, I just have a hunch that some of you are going, like I have been this week, hold on a second. This isn't what I came to church to hear. I came to church to be encouraged. I want you to, to encourage, it's been a rough week. Tell me something that'll send me back out ready to go. Far be it for me to tell us anything that Jesus wouldn't. And here, Jesus says, the Son of Man will, be, will suffer, be rejected, and will be killed. 
And as his followers, we face the same thing. I'm going to show you that in more detail in a minute. But let's just make real quick a practical life application. It's this verse and others in scripture that make the prosperity gospel and the self-help gospel so dangerous to us as Christ followers. It's, it's this verse and others, this, this very real theme in Jesus' teaching that following Christ leads to suffering and rejection and death and hardships that makes the, the, the preaching of those who would say, you know what, the gospel is about God being able to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He'll help you make better decisions. You, you can choose to do the right thing. You can wash your face, girl, and you'll be okay. You can have the best you yet. The prosperity gospel and the self-help gospel is not of Jesus Christ. And we must be careful. Those who preach and teach and write from this self-help prosperity gospel. They take the words of John the Baptist when John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And they, they twist them, they pervert them so that it's, he must increase so that I can increase with him. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, if you follow Jesus, you will certainly face suffering and rejection and eventually death. And we don't like that. That's hard. But that's who our follower is. The guy who started this whole thing, if you will, the founder of Christianity, started this by suffering and being, rejecting, being rejected and dying. What makes us think we'll have a better outcome? If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we're going to follow where he has led the way. We have plenty of scriptural evidence to suggest that the disciples didn't get this. They certainly didn't get it before Luke 9. And they really didn't get it after Luke 9 either. Not until after Jesus had suffered, had been rejected and died, and then come back from the, from the dead. Then they finally went, oh, got it. But they didn't get it. They were expecting a Messiah who would come and would, would stomp out Rome, would crush them, a, a conqueror greater than Alexander, who would lead them in triumphant possession, procession and, and would reestablish Israel. And they could again be on the heap of human history on the top. And Jesus said to them, no, 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 you're right that I'm God's Messiah. But your understanding of who Messiah is and what Messiah will do is not... God's understanding of who Messiah is and what Messiah will do. And if I don't miss my guess, you as I can, can relate to, to the disciples because we do the same thing. We find it way too easy to slip in this, 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 this thought process that says, I'm going to follow Jesus because of the good he does for me. He's my savior, my redeemer, my father, my healer, my friend. And, and all those things are true and all those things are scriptural. But we find it way too easy to follow Jesus for the perks, for the benefits, for the blessings. And Jesus says to us through passages like today, I am your savior. 
And I am your healer. And I am your redeemer and your restorer and your friend and your father. All those things. But all those things don't necessarily mean what you think they mean. God's understanding of Savior is different than your understanding of Savior. God's ways are radically different than your ways. God's way is the way of suffering. So again, you're probably sitting there going, oh, this, isn't, this isn't what I was hoping for today. I've really had a rough week. I want to be encouraged. So what do we do with this? How do we take this message that Jesus lays before the disciples as they're praying together? What's that have to do with us? Well, I would suggest that Jesus didn't leave us hanging there. The passage continues, right? Jesus says, be my disciple. Anyone who would be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross, and must follow me. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. That's not going to be the end, but all that's going to happen before he returns to heaven. Oh, and by the way, you get to do that too, so come be my disciple. This is what Jesus does. This is crazy. You don't hear this stuff preached at Joel Osteen's church. You don't hear this stuff preached at Elevation Church in North Carolina. You don't hear this stuff written about in the books of the prosperity gospel and self-help gospel writers. Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself. The, the idea here is I want you to do what Peter did to Jesus on the night of his trial. You remember, three times someone come to, came to Peter and said, you're a disciple of Jesus. No, no, I don't even know the guy. I'm telling you, you mistaken identity, I don't know him. He denied knowing Jesus. When Jesus says a disciple will deny himself, he's saying a disciple will do what Peter did, except it's not with Jesus, it's, it's, with, it's with myself. I'll deny that I even know myself. This, this life driven by self-fulfillment, self-desire, what I want to do, my hopes, my dreams, my vision, that's not part of the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you want to deny yourself. You want to take up your cross. I remember having a conversation with someone who, uh, you know, just told me some um, very painful suffering that, that they were enduring, some hardships that life had brought their way. And, uh, the, you know, conversation got done. We prayed together. And, and on the way out, the person said, well, pastor, I guess this is just my cross to bear. Which sounds very biblical. But when Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross, He's referring to the things that we, um, that we willingly endure because I'm following Jesus. And I believe that by willingly enduring this thing, God will reach others through me. So what, so what Jesus isn't talking about when he, when he says, take up your cross, he's not talking about the suffering that any human being can face. He's not talking about our health problems. He's not talking about the cancer we're fighting. He's not talking about our rebellious children or, or our financial difficulties. Those things, are, those things are difficult. And there is God's grace for us in the midst of those things. But Scripture has different metaphor for those. Those are, those are the, the, the thorns that we endure. Those are the valleys of life. Those are the storms of life. 
But when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. He's saying, what are you doing that you're only doing because you're sure that God has called you to do it because God wants to impact others through it. Here's how one theologian defined this idea of taking up the cross. We're going to put it on the screen. Our cross is that difficult thing we choose to do because we are his people. We choose a hard place a difficult relationship, a thankless job. We serve on a committee or we get involved with a neighbor. We, we, we do the things that we don't have to do because it's God's agenda for us. We take 30 years, we kick lymphoma in the teeth, and then we still serve in the mission. Not because it's fun and fancy, but because God said, I want you to do this. This is where I want you to go. This is the ministry I want you to do. This is who I want you to be. Jesus says, come follow me. Deny yourself. Forget about yourself. Take up your cross. Do the hard things that other people avoid, but you move towards because you're following Jesus. And keep following me. Not just when it's easy and comfortable, not just when it's happy and encouraging, not just when it's uh, what we want to do, when it aligns with, with who we think we are and what our experiences has taught us, but keep following me regardless. Jesus' message to the disciples here and to us is, yes, I'm Messiah, I'm Lord, I'm Savior. And I will lead you. But I'm gonna lead you through seasons of suffering and rejection, through hardship, not because I'm mean and cruel and masochistic, but because that's the only way to do this. Because God's way has always been the way of suffering, always been the way of hardship. And I'm leading, you, I'm leading the way. I've gone there first so that when you get there, you know that I'll lead you through it. You know that on the other side comes resurrection. You know that you're not walking it alone. You will face suffering and rejection and hardship and maybe even death, but you do that knowing that I'll lead you through. So what do we do with this? this hard message, but this Christ message. I'm going to go back to the very beginning of this passage where once when Jesus was praying with his disciples, he asked them a question. And I'd just like to ask us a question, Earl and us gathered. In our prayer life, as we pray, are we praying about the things that Jesus revealed in this passage, as I pray, is the subject of my prayers for myself, for my comfort, for my ease, for my liking? Or am I praying in light of what Jesus shared here? Do I pray that the Holy Spirit would help me to deny myself, to, to set aside every inkling of, of self fulfillment of self-desire of my vision, my hopes, my dreams, my plans? And do I ask the Holy Spirit to give me the strength to, uh, to instead to look for his desires? Do I, do I pray that, that, that the Son of God would help me to take up my cross daily? 
to do the things that are difficult, that don't make sense, that our culture would say, no, 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 that can't be right because it's, it's not getting bigger and better. So obviously that's not of God. Am I willing to do the hard things because I have a clear confidence that God said, I want you to do this. You worry about being faithful. I'll worry about the results. You take up the cross and follow me. In my own prayers, in my, and in our prayers, are, are we asking God for the grace to keep following Jesus no matter where he leads? No matter what he asks of us. No matter what happens around us. No matter who turns back, that we keep following. Parents and grandparents, as we pray for our kids and grandkids, is this how we're praying? My wife and I are sending our first one off to college next year. And I'm telling you what, this rubber is meeting the road and I'm not sure that we like it right now. Amy went to go to BU, that little, their um, weekend, come and discover Bethel. And um, Amy is, uh, I didn't ask her for permission to share this, but I think it's pretty public knowledge. Amy intends to be a doctor. She believes God's called her to be a doctor. And so we dropped her off Thursday night at Bethel. And as Sarah and I are leaving, we're walking through the parking lot. And, and, uh, and, and I don't even know what prompted it. Sarah said to me, oh, I know what prompted it. When we were dropping her off, one of the groups of people that had a booth was the, uh, the student travel team. So they do, you know, missions trips and semester abroad and stuff like that. So we're talking about that, both saying how we wish when we were at Bethel, we would have done a semester abroad. But, but Sarah says to me, I don't want her to do something like that. I'm afraid God's going to call her to doctors without borders or something like that. And we're both going, wait a minute. Were we called to raise this child for us? Or were we called to raise this child because God may have a plan for her that requires her to deny herself, to take up her cross, and to follow him regardless of what that costs her and regardless of what that costs us? Is this how we're praying for our children, parents? That God would call them and would do with them what he wants to, no matter how scared and worried and uncomfortable we as their parents and grandparents are with it? How does this reality impact our prayers? How about as a church? As a church, our, our mission is to, to form big Christians, disciples who make disciples. We say uh, people who belong to Jesus and who are becoming like Jesus and who are being sent by Jesus. But, but do we really mean that? Are we really, really praying about our church and our ministries in a way that says, Father, as we continue to disciple people, would you help us to, uh, to, to teach people and train people to deny themselves? That it's not about them. That it's not about us. It's not about Buell Missionary Church. That the, 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 the way to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, is to die, deny ourselves. Are you praying? Are we praying together that God will help us form disciples who take up their crosses, who go the hard places, who, who tap other people on the shoulder and say, let's go do this together. I believe God wants us to do that. No one else is doing it, but God wants us to. Let's go do it. Who cares what it's going to cost? We can do this. God wants us to. We'll do it. Is that what we're praying? Is that what we're doing as a church? Do our activities reflect that? Do our all-church events reflect that? Is this what we're praying about for ourselves, for our church, 
for our kids and grandkids. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. But that doesn't mean everything's always going to be up and to the right, that everything's always going to be better. More times than not, that's going to mean suffering, that's going to mean rejection, that's going to be hardship, because it is by hardships that we enter the kingdom of God, according to the book of Acts. And so why don't you come with me, Jesus says. Why don't you come follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I've already led the way. And I'm telling you that on the other side of this thing, there is resurrection, there is hope, there is new life. If you're willing to endure, if you're willing to say, I'll set aside, I'll lose my life for the sake of Jesus Christ, then you will find salvation in Jesus Christ. It doesn't work the other way. It's difficult to do. We can't do it on our own. That's why this is born in prayer. That's why this has to be sustained in prayer. Because it's only in prayer that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It says, this is who I am and this is who you are. Let's do this together. Follow me. Will you pray with me? Father, this is a, um, a difficult message. And yet it's the heart of the gospel. That the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, my Savior, my Lord, had to face suffering and rejection and death in order to bring salvation. And then that he calls me to follow the same path, to follow where he's led the way. Father, we don't like this message. But would you remind us that we're following Jesus Christ? That he's led the way. That he's leading us through. That when we do face suffering, when people do reject us, when, uh, when it seems like the, uh, the risk of what we're about to do is death, if not physical, the death of our reputation, death of our, you know, our well-being, death of life the way that we wanted it lived, would you remind us that we're following the one who's led the way, not only led us to that, but is going to lead us through that. Father, would you make us a church who, uh, who doesn't just say that we're making disciples because that's a buzzword and, and that's what churches are supposed to do, but the, who understands that the kind of the disciples that need to be raised up in this day and age are men and women who will say, I am ready to deny myself. I will take up my cross. I will do whatever's necessary. I'll go wherever God calls. I'll, I'm even willing to stand and to lose my life for God's glory. Father, would you help us to be a church that, that forms and develops that kind of disciple? Would you continue to make me into that kind of disciple? And, and our church leaders and our other staff and, and, and those who are bought into this, this mission to form big Christians, would you make us the kind of men and women who deny ourselves, who take up our crosses 
and who continue to follow Jesus no matter what happens. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our Messiah. We thank you that he's our King. And we thank you that the path that he leads leads not only through suffering and rejection and death and hardship, but leads to resurrection and hope, the hope of glory. Would you remind us of that as we carry our cross? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.